This is the Truth Exchange Podcast, a unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 125. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. This is part two, twoism in the home. I think it's interesting, though, that people all around us, you can sense that they are looking for an identity. Mm-hmm. They don't know who they are. And of course, this makes them even more confused. <laughs> they don't even know if they're a man or a woman. Uh, and you see all these various things. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time online with the social media stuff, but you, you have all these different ways of, you know, showing yourself to be somebody that is not like anybody else. And, you, you know, you, you've started a trend that everybody's going to follow now. And uh, I just think it's so interesting that as Christians, we have this beautiful, unique identity. We, we have a name in Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. No one is like us. And, and Jesus loves every single one of us, uh, who we are. And I think that's such a, um, I, I think that's a thing that we can actually, as we realize that this is something that other people do not have, mm-hmm. uh, they see that they see that in the home when they come into your home they see the way you treat your children they see the way you treat one another and 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 what our world is all about rights and i've got to claim my rights and and yet the beauty of the christian home is that people are hopefully like jesus giving up all their rights <laughs> in order to serve other people and and that in the end ends up building a an identity and and a beauty and a confidence and and a lack of fear uh, that people look at and are stunned. Actually, I mean, I, I've had people. I remember two women who came into our home, and our home was chaotic. We had all these kids running around. Everything was messy, and I just kind of gave up trying to keep it all in order until they all got out of the house. But but uh, this woman came in. And she it's thought, still messy though. <laughs> that messy <laughs> you didn't get the big kid yeah the big the big kid yeah <laughs> so i this lady came into my home she says oh i just love coming here he said it's so peaceful i said peaceful i said you're out of your nut you're out of your mind she said, no, 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 you know what i mean well I, I think i knew more what she meant than she did i don't think she mm-hmm. realized what it was that she was sensing the presence of the holy spirit in the home and it, and it made such a huge difference that she loved to come there, even though it was chaotic. There were kids playing all over the place, yelling and screaming and all that kind of stuff. But she knew there was a, a joy there. And, um, yeah. and I, another lady came and she said almost exactly the same thing. And I said, I, and of course, I always try to take it off myself because it's not me. It's, it's the Lord, you know. So I, I said this one lady, I said, um, yes, I said, OK, but you know what? And stop, stop, stop. She said, don't tell me. Don't tell me you're going to say it's not you. You're going to say it's God, but it's not. It's you. <laughs> so, so then I thought, okay, how am I going to? So then I, I realized, you know, it, you can't do it as one family. You've got to do it. She's got to meet another family, another mm. Christian family, and another Christian yeah. family, and another Christian family. Until finally she said, wait a minute, they're all like that, you know. Um, and then, you know, it comes to dawn on her that this is what she would like as well. So uh, I just feel like we have this beautiful, positive thing that we are safe in our identities in Christ. Yes. And people are so lost and they're so trying to push the boundaries to become something that they're not in order to show just to to create some kind of a self that's important. And um, 
So uh, that natural sinful tendency to want to be self-important ends up really destroying them and, and throwing them into the pit of hell in the end. So, Well, Rebecca, what you're saying is so important because, you know, we started this entire conversation by acknowledging that God created us male and female, and there's nothing that we can do that will undo the ultimate maleness and femaleness of us created in God's image. So there are these structures. And when we buck against the structures, we do ourselves damage. So you see this on an individual level, you see it very much, very clearly in the transgender movement. And I've talked in previous talks and on previous podcasts about the, the medical damage that gets done to people. But the reason they're done damage is because there is that ultimate reality that they're bucking up against. And so it's very clear when someone is doing surgeries and taking hormones and they're doing all of this medical damage, because what's written into the, every cell of their being of each of us is trying to exert itself because it is true. And I think that within our cultural and governmental structures, we see this also where, you know, we've talked a lot about womanhood um, as far as like our ability to bear children and our ability to, to nurture. But I, I do think that there is something also within those structures where we do tend as females to be the caregivers of culture, the caregivers within the church. Men have different roles. And um, where I see this coming out is in the, this is going to seem like a strange segue, but it's, it's very relevant to everything that you've just said is in the national strategy on uh, gender equity and equality that the White House just released a couple of weeks ago. Um, there are two really interesting things. The first, and this is touching on what you had said earlier, Stephen, where um, it's no longer even just about equality because we, we believe that men and women are equal, created in the image of a holy God, we, we bear an equal value and dignity. And so now you see this idea of equity coming in. So it's no longer just equality, but it's an equity of outcomes that's ex expected that I, I think is just impossible. Um, so the terminology is changing, but then you see them trying to resolve problems that they, they've kind of brought on themselves. And one of the things that I'm looking at is in this document, um, there are all these statements that are made about how culture, the status quo is what they say, has not worked well for women, girls, and all those who experience gender-based discrimination. Um, they talk about people who belong to underserved communities that they're trying to help, and they go on to say women's work. So right there, let's define that. They don't, but they say women's work, both paid and unpaid, is often overlooked and devalued despite its critical role in the global economy. Well, what is it that women are doing that's so valuable? Let's let's touch on that. And then they go on to say um, that they're trying to break down structural barriers that have hampered women, especially women of color, from fully participating in the labor force. So now we're talking about the, the paid workforce and from being paid and treated equitably when they do. And then they go on to say that another crisis that they have to deal with is that we're at a crisis of a lack of caregivers. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's just this huge circle of, you know, all the structures are bad. Uh, you know, women are totally underserved. They, and then it changes what women are supposed to be doing. They never define what women's work is, but now we're in a crisis because we don't have enough caregivers. So it just goes around and around and around. And all I can think is, that same truth that you're talking about that shines beautifully in the Christian home, even when we're dealing with problems and brokenness and our own sin, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit because we're called and named and loved by God. And so he clings to us, even when we're not clinging to him, we see in this larger picture within the culture where we're, we're shucking off all the structures and then we're reaping all of the problems and we don't know what to do because we won't say that the, anything about the structures were good. So I'm sorry for the monologue, but as I'm just hearing this, it's you can take it on that macro scale and then you can draw it all the way out into the big mess of the world that we're trying to speak the gospel into right now. We have been kind of all answering all the questions that, that we had set up in various ways. We've, we've touched <laughs> on issues from what does it look like for men to give themselves for their wives, right? What does it look like for biblical submission for a wife to submit to her husband? What are the relationships between the pagan movement and the shifting of the gender? I think I would like to camp there a little bit more if possible. I, I had just recently, I was reading in, in Dr. Jones's book, Stolen Identity, and he had this, this one-liner, if I could make put it that way, where he said, Gnosticism rejected gender roles in marriage. And there was a epiphanies. Is that right, Dr. Jones? He says the righteousness of God is a communion with equality for heaven, equally stretched out on all sides, like a circle embraces the whole earth. God makes no distinction between male and female. It is true that the Gnostics rejected any serious male and female differences. One of the famous phrases was flee maternity. <laughs> And the ending to the Gospel of Thomas saying, saying 114 was when I think Jesus said to Thomas or to Peter, when women become men, then they can enter the kingdom of heaven. So we, we have this uh, Gnostic view of sex, which is back with us now mm -hmm. in our present time as the rejection of true distinctions between the sexes. And it's really, as with the Gnostics of the ancient world, a fundamental rejection of God the Creator. The Gnostics hated the Old Testament. They made fun of it, and they made fun of the God who created as an evil God. There was another God who was in everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we probably described that as a pagan notion of the spirituality of matter, that was their view of God. So Gnosticism, an ancient heresy, is back in our time, showing itself in the rejection of sexual distinctions, which is what brings me back to what I was also trying to say earlier, that the struggle is obviously of a physical and a familial nature, but it's also a deeply spiritual conflict that we have on before us to make the case for God as the creator and for our identities as valid. For back to what Rebecca was saying earlier, the best way you can make the case for acknowledging orderliness and, and God-ordained order is actually through living it, as, as Rebecca 
Yep. And and Peter and other families were living it, and other people came in, mm-hmm. and they felt what the Apostle Paul juxtaposes with disorder, peace. Yeah, a lot of folks always, whenever they come out to our symposium or think tank, they're always asking, okay, what's the practicality here? What is the practicality? You know, give me the the nuts, nuts and bolts. Give me the tools. And some of it is just simply just live it out. Fathers, go home, father well your children, love your wife well. And and we can't tell you what that really looks like, but you know, I mean, as a father, you know how to love your wife. And mothers, you know how to love your children. I'm always I, I always love to hear over and over the stories that Rebecca shares about the difficulty of mothering and she talks about in one of the articles that we have on the website, but I'd love for Rebecca for, to hear the story again about noisy, quiet times. My, oh. wife, my, my wife often talks about how she feels like such a failure that, that she can never have that designated time where she gets a good hour in the word and she's all prayed up and she's ready to take on the day and get everyone breakfast and then start the day with schooling and then get everyone lunch and then do more schooling and put everyone down for nap time and then get dinner ready and, and, you know, when, when that day happens and she's like, I, I never can get in the word. And Rebecca, you have a story similar to that. Yeah, I, I, I did write this little article because this one morning I was, you know, the kids were we have a lot of them. And yeah, you try to get up early and yet they're up earlier and so forth. So I was in <laughs> our, our bedroom trying to read my Bible. And, and my older girls were getting themselves uh, ready to go off to school and they were making their own lunches. And it suddenly dawned on me that, um, you know, if you're doing this for one of these, you're doing it to me. So the presence of Jesus at that moment was with my girls, not uh, back in the bedroom <laughs> trying, to, trying to read the Bible. <laughs> so I went out there and, and um, you know, just was with them and realizing that I was ministering to Christ by ministering to them, which is what he tells us in his word. It's not any, you know, anything that I came up with. It's, it's right there in his word. When you do this to the least of these. Um, you came up with the classic title, though. Yeah, Noisy Quiet Times. I noisy think. Quiet Times. <laughs> you're in the middle of it all, but you're also with Jesus in it. And, you know, there's another principle that I've, I've underlined when I speak to women, and it's not just for women. Um, Paul puts it. Uh, I call it what I, what I call uh, radical positive obedience. In other words, um, we're talking about um, we're in First Samuel in the women's Bible study that, that I'm in, and uh, you could see him obeying, so quote unquote, you know what God told him to do. Him, who was him? What Samuel told? Uh, oh, oh uh, Saul, King Saul. He's he's sort of doing what God told him to do, and he thinks he's done fine, but it, his heart's not in it, and you know, Paul says, you know, you're not supposed to lie. Okay, that's fine. All right. So you stop lying. But if you're just saying nothing, that's in the, you're, you're coasting in neutral. What you need to do is use your mouth to encourage people. So same with stealing, you know, all right, you're not supposed to steal. So what are you supposed to do? He says, he says, you need to work hard. Okay, you gain some money. What do you do with that money? You give it away. <laughs> so there, there's this sort of three stages in obedience. There's the, the, the awareness of the disobedience and you want to, okay, I, I need to stop that. But you, you can't just coast around in neutral. You have to see what is the positive 
thing that I should be doing. So, okay, I see my husband and he's doing this sort of thing. It's annoying me. And I'm sort of cross with myself for feeling that way about him because he's my husband. I need to reject, you know, I need to, to honor him. And so you say, okay, I got to stop having this bad attitude about my husband. So, so what do you do? You, you just sort of, now you're coasting somewhere and you're very, it's, if you don't watch it, you're going to be slipping right back into that same sinful attitude. So now you have to decide, okay, what can I do for my husband or with my husband or how can I encourage my, so it becomes a positive act, which then sort of wipes out the sorrow of the old act and actually brings joy. So it's, um, it's something that, you know, you have to keep reminding yourself of all the time every day. But, but I think it's a good way. I mean, Paul does it there. It's not me again. It's just right there in the scriptures. But this is what he tells us to do. Don't do this. And don't. it's not enough just to stop. You have to do this as a positive action that, that really shows true heartfelt obedience. So, And that, that's what we're all about in a Christian family all the time. We, all of us, we have to teach our children how to do that too and, and how to resolve conflicts between each other and all that kind of thing. So it's a training ground. Joshua, I know you know a lot about that. <laughs> you, and you've taught your kids so much in terms of just memorization. I don't know if you ever heard the story of Joshua's uh, oldest when he was quite young. I think he's about three or something. And he was in the Sunday school class in our church. And uh, Joshua had taught him that we must never change the words of God, right? So he's in Sunday school and he's trying to repeat the, they're, they're learning a verse. And of course, he already knew the verse, typical of Joshua's kids. They already know it. And he's trying to learn it. And the, the teacher and, he, and the, the teacher could see him just getting all hot under the collar and he's wiggling and he's fussing and he's frowning. And the teacher finally says, he says, what is the matter, Isaac? And he says, you cannot change the words of God. <laughs> He was using a different she version. Was using of a different the Bible. version of the passage. I had taught I had taught them the, the passage in the King James, the the authorized version, and the teacher was using the ESV, which is typical what we use in the in the Presbyterian Church in America. So Isaac was very upset. Actually, he actually got sent out of the classroom because he raised raised such a stink about it. So we had a good talk about the fifth commandment and. Uh, being in submission to those in authority over us inferiors and superiors. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to make Rebecca uncomfortable probably, but I'm, I'm always chastened and encouraged at the same time, Rebecca, because, you know, I've, I've worked with you guys for 13 years. I've worked in your home and lived in your home. And so I've been there on the days when everyone's in a good mood. And I've been there on the days when things aren't going well. And I am so um, chastened by how your heart really submits, you know, you, you, and I know no one does it perfectly, but you are such a beautiful example of a wife who really loves to love her husband (laughs) And who um, really sees the beauty um, and the gospel orientation of your role as wife and mother in a way that is is just a shining example to the rest of us. And, you know, I'm really good at um, I need to respect my husband more. Stop doing that because I'm trying to respect you. You know, like I'm I'm constantly <laughs> looking at, at what he could be doing better to make my job easier. You know, I, I'm so 
horrified at how I'm wired that way, you know, but I am so encouraged too, in the ways that I know the Lord has used you and my own mom when she was here and the other ladies at our church were so blessed with such a rich community of long marriages and women who are honest about those struggles so that when, um, when my heart is chastened, I have people like you to look to and say, Lord, <laughs> let me be like Rebecca Jones on the step of the way to growing up. Uncomfortable because you know, my, my heart goes in those same places that yours does. And you just have to fight back, you know, every yeah. time. And then you get discouraged because you think, you know, why am I doing this again? And, you know, you know better than that. What, what's the matter? You know, it, but it's, it, it's life. It's what we're sinners and we just yeah. hurt to sinful patterns. And I, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was texting Bob before this started. I said, I wish I weren't so consistent in blowing something so beautifully the morning of a podcast so that I always come and sit down at this desk thinking, Jesus, I need you so badly. What on earth, you know, like what, why, why do you put up with me? Why do you deal with me? Why do you, and yet he does, um, he does so beautifully and he does change us. And I'm so thankful for that. And I just, I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for the way that you live it out. And the, the fact that you're honest about it being a struggle because you do make it look beautiful. <laughs> One of my favorite photos of the Joneses is, is a photo that is on Peter's Facebook and it's it's the photo of Rebecca lovingly leaning over Dr. Jones in his chair. Yeah. What's beautiful about that photo, just right before that photo was taken, was the, was the two of you had gotten into a little bit of an argument. And I don't it, it, and I don't remember what it was over. That never happens, John. <laughs> I've been with the Truth Exchange for just ten years, and I have watched because I I did not get to see this growing up. I grew up in a broken home. And I didn't have a, a, a model of a father who loved his wife. I didn't have a daddy who loved his children. But I always, I have appreciated those years where we all had an office together and watching Dr. Jones repent to his wife or Rebecca repent to her husband or watching submission, biblical submission and biblical love and care modeled in front of me. And, uh, and so that photo is, is a beautiful thing picture to me. And I, I, I cherish that photo because the, the backlog of that story was that, that the two of you got into some sort of skirmish, but, but, but Christ as a center in your marriage shows that the forgiveness and the reconciliation, and it's just a powerful picture. So if listeners be sure to go and visit and see that picture. People are worried that, you know, they don't want to get people into their home because then they will see you as you really are. And, and there's, you know, it's, um, and it's true. You don't really want people to see the things that you're doing that are, but, but what I've realized over the years is that even when the most horrible sort of disaster seems to happen, um, the Lord can be honored anyway, because what they, they, what people who come into your home see, they don't, okay, they, they see an argument, they know what it's like to have an argument, but what they, what they're surprised about is that, that reconciliation process that happens, and, and the fact that you can then, you know, if you've had arguments like that, why are you still together, you know, if it, that had happened in my house, I'd have walked out, you know, it's, it's, it's seeing, how Christians resolve issues. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's just as important to see that they 
do that process as it is to to have this sort of perfect little family or house that you know everybody thinks is fabulous so it's important in other words for unbelievers to see that you have the same problems they do but you just find a different source and a different way of resolving them. Last question. We touched on it a bit. There has been an uptick in singleness within the church, certainly within culture. And the often what goes hand in hand with it is, is that the church makes too much about marriage. We idolize marriage. We idolize the nuclear family. And we need to recognize that the church is a much better aspect or, or is more idealistic as a family. And so we need to stop idolizing the nuclear family. We need to stop, uh, we need to stop idolizing marriage and recognize the calling of singleness. What's wrong with that perspective? Well, I would simply jump in immediately and say you had to use the term family <laughs> when you were describing how people think singleness mm. is important and of course it it has its place but the church as my wife's book did we mention her book by the way um we're going to show a picture of it on this on okay. this video but it is but, does christianity squash women I think a whole book is a defense of the family as an expression of Christ and our relationship with him as Trinity. So you cannot get rid of the family if you uh, are taking this position about singleness. You can take a position on singleness, but the family is essential because mm -hmm. That's how the gospel is revealed in scripture as a family. And uh, I think that that's a major point of her book that is very strong and needs, needs to be understood in our day and age that our families reflect the gospel. I mean, the, the, the accusation that... Um we've made an idol of marriage and we shouldn't do that. Well, I mean, of course, by definition, you shouldn't make an idol of anything. Uh, the question is whether we have made an idol of marriage uh, or, you know, uh, whether in our, as, as, as churches, whether in our discussion and encouragement to marriage, we have at times uh, been uh, insensitive. Uh, well, just, I think, insensitive uh, to those who find for whatever reason themselves uh, not in a situation where they are married or can marry. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a, that's a, that's a legitimate concern. But I mean, what we, what we need to be careful about is the language that we use. And I, I don't actually think the accusation that we've made an idol of marriage is, is, a, is a helpful or, or fair accusation. And, and certainly I, I remember growing up, you would hear talks on singleness. You would hear people say, you know, uh, but, you know, there, there, there is this calling to singleness. So obviously, it wasn't spoken about as much as, as marriage, but it, it was there. But, but, but the other thing we need to be careful about is, um, yeah, we, we want to distinguish between sort of marriage and, and family. And, and so just because someone isn't married doesn't mean that they can't be integrated into a family. 
I mean, they're not going to be integrated into a marriage, but they can mm-hmm. still be integrated into a family. And one, and maybe one of the, the sins that, that modern families have committed is not sufficiently integrating family members who have not married for whatever reason into their uh, family into their family activities, into their family structure. Mm-hmm. And, and that, is, that is a legitimate criticism, uh, probably. Um, an interesting question. And, and look, maybe over the last 30 years, there has been a rise in singleness, uh, maybe because uh, uh, more women uh, are retaining the faith and more men are falling away, which means that there are fewer Christian men uh, for women to be able to, marriage, uh, to, to marry. And maybe that has given rise to the kind of singleness movement and, and that's and that's very very sad uh, but but and and i think there there is a place for critiquing uh, what we might call an i i don't even like to say an overemphasis on marriage but a discussion of marriage without acknowledging uh the the call to singleness that you find um in the new testament but what i want to avoid is a tendency that I've noticed lately, which is for those in the singleness movement to sort of say, to kind of want to put them both together as though there's, as though there's no more general calling for people to get married than there is for people to be single. I think that's, I think that's what I, I want to worry about, that in all this discussion, the, you know, the, the importance placed on marriage and, and, and family from Genesis throughout the New Testament doesn't become minimized for the sake of making single people feel better about themselves. No. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's, where, that's where I really want to not go. Uh, I think that's where it gets dangerous. I hear what you're saying. I think what I was trying to say is there is no family without marriages. That's all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you want to promote families, but you cannot do that if there is no marriage, mm-hmm. which is the fundamental yeah. basis of all families. But it's yeah. true that it can be very lonely for a Christian single. Yes. Uh, and yeah. probably more women than men. Uh, yeah. And they, they have a hard time. And, and I think family structures have a hard time knowing how to in- integrate them as well, because you can't just bring them into the gang of your family and expect them to, you know, they, they have to make all the effort to get to know all these different people in the family and all of that. How, how do you do that? It's, it's not an easy job uh, for either way for, for, for both sides, but it's so crucial for singles to, to have that sense of family and to have people in their lives who will kind of dote on them, you know, like your parents would have, or I mean, sometimes they're just far away from their parents. They don't have any siblings to talk to. I know our girls, they got on, they have, you know, their, their WhatsApp together and they're all chatting from, from all over the world, uh, you know, to try and stay in touch. But if this person is single and has no, no family nearby, and it's very hard for them. You know, I, I grew up in a home where, um, and Peter and Rebecca, you saw this, I think, with my parents. My parents were very intentional about identifying people mm-hmm. in the church. And my dad always had a, a real soft spot when he was a librarian at the high school for um, foreign exchange students. But they really, there are specific people I can think of whom they just, it was like they chose them. And for whatever reason, these people, uh, one was a widow, there was another who just, he was in a position where he was never going to be able to get married. 
And they just told them literally, you're ours now. <laughs> you, you are a part of us. And that meant that when, um, when there were holidays, there was no discussion about whether these people would be invited or not. It was just a given, an expectation that they would be a part of our celebration because they were, they were ours. They belonged to us. Bob and I have tried to do that with, with kids. Um, I, I know this is not specific just to single people, but with kids who come from homes that are chaotic or broken um, in our own family to just say, and we, we can't do it with everyone. We don't have the resources to do it with everyone, but to just say to certain people, you, you belong with us. And so when we plan, when we budget, when we do those things to try to intentionally make room for people who don't have the natural family structures that we do. And I think that is a responsibility on anyone in the church. It goes two ways because I can think of single women in my life who also really poured into me and my kids when I was in particular kinds of need. So I think for singles to kind of hold back and, and expect, you know, that they must be pursued and that they don't do any of the pursuing, like, I think singles can look for places where they can minister and where they can love and where they can be a help and integrate themselves into families, but that families too have an obligation within the church to look for the widows, to look for the singles, to look for the lonely people and to find ways to integrate them. And in. I just, I think that that's an imperative responsibility for any of us within the larger church community to show love. And I've, I've appreciated those relationships that my parents formed with these people. And I benefited from them, certainly, even as they benefited from our families. I have a question. Do you, do you think that we, that the church, the, the, the Christian community is also sensing this kind of fear about global warming and not wanting to get married because, or in the culture, I see it. The young yeah. people are scared to death and they don't dare. You know, I, I heard some interview on BBC and you know, the girl said, you know, I, well, I just really would love to get married and have a baby. I don't think I should. I don't think it's right because, you know, what am I going to bring this child into? And the world is, you know, I, I don't want them to, you know, suffer and get burnt up. And, you know, it was like, <laughs> I, I don't know that. I don't think I feel that so much in the church, but. I don't think so either. I don't, I don't know. If I have seen that in the church, I mean, like you said, Rebecca, I, I've seen those interviews. I have read those opinion pieces. And I was talking about this on the podcast. You know, whenever we have kids, somebody always jokes, how many more are you going to have? And I said, well, you know, my children are like an arrow in my hand. And when I meet my enemies at the gate, I won't be ashamed. But I'm coming to the reality that when I meet my enemies at the gate, I'm not going to be ashamed because they don't have any children to bring with them. And arrows in their hands. Huh? Right. So. And then at the same time, so within the church, I, and I, we mentioned this in the last couple episodes was there is a real problem with young men not stepping up to the plate. They're, they're bound by pornography. They are not stepping up to the occasion to, to get educated or to take on trade jobs. Mm -hmm. And you have young women who are very determined to do those things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I often meet a lot of women or young women here in Colombia. I hear this all the time is that I just don't see any young men who are suitable. Right. 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 Because they just, they just have this glaze, this fog, and they just are not rising up to the occasion. They won't go to battle for me. They won't take care of me. 
That's interesting because when we talk about singleness, I always think of people, well, that there must be people who feel called to singleness. I, I can think of one person um, that I have known who felt a call to singleness because he believed very much that the Lord had things for him to do that he needed to stay single for. He didn't, he did not feel a desire to get married and he felt a, a very strong call to minister in these other ways. But <laughs> if you're single, yeah, that's a, that is a crisis. I would say if you're single, because men are taken over by pornography or women, I mean, they sound like anti-patriarchs. The men? Yes. Yeah. Pornography has stripped them of any That's honor. right. Yeah. I think hopefully our women will gain a hunger for patriarchal men. <laughs> and then if you well, can't find them. <laughs> well, this uh, sort of reminds me of uh, an our infamous man, Mark Driscoll, because one of Mark Driscoll's, you know, big messages, and he was saying this, well before Jordan Peterson came along was that you know men need to man up that's right and yeah. marry their girlfriends mm -hmm. get skills so they can support a family yeah. and uh and grow up to be well, godly he patriarchs right. he was right saying that yeah I, look if I can I, I as an Australian um well it's probably not as an Australian um Mark Driscoll was big here in Australia as well. I, I was never really paying any attention to it because I was an early career academic. I was focusing on my research. But he did have a tremendous impact on many, many Christians here in Australia. Um, uh, the first I really paid much attention to Mark Driscoll was recently when I listened to the uh, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which, of course, was taking the church by storm a few months ago. And I, I was listening to everything that Mark Driscoll had to say, never really ha having heard anything he had to say before. And I was just thinking to myself, this man, this guy's like a cultural genius. This guy just understood at the time a deep cultural need That's right. that maybe not many other people at the time were talking about. He expressed it so well. Uh, but of course, he also expressed a whole bunch of other things which were which were less savory and at the very least sort of bordered on you could even use the word misogyny um but but you know that 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 message of of mark driscoll's uh, was a good as you say Peter, it was a good proper message mm -hmm. and, and for me the sad thing now is that the guy who's most known now for that message is is, is jordan peterson not a christian yeah. I think that's that's pretty sad uh, when it was actually and I got this actually from the, the recent book, Jesus and John Wayne by uh, Demez. And again, I'm reading this book by Demez, Jesus and John Wayne. I'm really, I'm really enjoying it um, as a historian. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading it, wow, these evangelical women like Phyllis Schlafly and, and Beverly LaHaye and, and these men along the way, they were saying things that they were saying things 30, 40 years ago that 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 now are considered cutting edge. And I was thinking, wow, like evangelicals were really onto something before the wider sort of broader culture was talking about. It, and that was sort of men manning up and, and also with women um, understanding, you know, what it is to be a woman. And it's such a shame now that um, I mean, an interesting thing to, 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 to interesting question to ask is, why has even all of this now come into a kind of suspicion 
in the sort of much of the discussion of the evangelical church, particularly sort of embodied in the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. Abuses of it, maybe. Abuses of... That's what I was just thinking is, you know, we've had um, the the tragedy of Ravi Zacharias. We've mm-hmm. had the Sovereign Grace Ministries um, fall apart. We've had... Uh, Willow Creek, you know, so these these men very high up in leadership who abused their place and who it seems in many of these instances were also using their leadership roles to allow other abuses to being to be covered up. And I think that is a part of why all of this is coming up right now is is we're being asked to answer for our own collective um, failings. And I I just come back again to what we were saying right at the beginning of this discussion is that it it would seem to me in each of those instances that it wasn't that the patriarchal system or the complementarian point of view was the issue. It was that uh, it was a very one-sided use of those things. And the patriarchs were were fallible. Yeah, yeah. I always say that Mark Driscoll failed because of his bad ecclesiology. He created his own church, did not have other patriarchs overlooking his shoulder, telling him where he was going wrong. Well, and those who sought to speak to him, he discounted. He wasn't right. willing to, to listen. And yeah. But I guess the question that comes to my mind for all of these people who are critiquing the complementarian view is, really, are you choosing something that is going to result in something better? You know, so if you if you reject the patriarchy in its biblical form, okay, so I'm not talking about the authoritarian, oppressive and abusive misuses of patriarchy. But if you if you reject the very clear complementary order that God has set out in scripture and in creation, it's like, okay, if you're going to escape that what are you escaping to that is going to serve you better i don't see a place where women are fundamentally treated better than they are in in the church and i think that's what was so mind-blowing to me about the things that i read that you wrote early on peter before i was ever working for truth exchange about the place and the the dignity of women all throughout scripture that that women hold and and the structures that were laid out within the church. And I know just from having worked for you guys for years versus having worked in the world for years um, as a professional woman, I have been treated better and respected more deeply. Um, the, The whole of me as a woman and as a mom and as a wife, I have I have benefited from my experience working for you as Christians who are convinced of these scriptural truths in ways that I never did um, working in the world in places where, uh, you know, I guess, you know, it was supposed to be more equal. I have a, I have a memory of being called into an office by an old boss of mine and being asked, I had a team of all women who ran events um, in the in the medical industry and we traveled all over the country running these events. And he called me in and he said, we'd like to ask you to stop referring to your team as the ladies. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> like, what? I, 
don't call them the lady. I, I was just kind of confused because we were the one all-female team that that worked at this company. And he said, no, uh, we feel that you're you're putting them down by calling them the ladies. And I was like, oh, okay, did someone complain? And he said, no, but we just feel that you're putting them down. <laughs> I said, well, what should I call them? And I was, I was just so confused. And he said, call them the guys. <laughs> so I could refer to them as the guys. And in his mind, he was being like very respectful of like the equality in the workplace, but my team of all ladies wasn't allowed to be called the ladies because it was a put down somehow. It's just, I don't know. That just comes to my mind in all of this because um, I just feel like there's an opportunity for us to show so much more respect and receive so much respect for the people as whom we've been created to be within these structures. And I, I dare anyone to show me a system that works out better um, because I, I really, I don't, I don't see one or a system grounded in something more objective than leading a family. Yeah. I'm afraid we're looking at egalitarian confusion as the only possible result of all of this. And uh, it will be a Marxist utopia, which is egalitarian confusion. Of course, having said all this, we certainly don't want to give the impression that a woman should never be out doing a job somewhere or no, I, I think we may have come across that way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are times and seasons in life and there are times when, you know, I see these seminary wives putting their husbands through school for a few years before they decide to have children. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then you see the, the, the woman whose kids are all off to school and she doesn't know what to do with herself and, uh, you know, would like to go out and earn a little money so they can take some vacations or whatever. So I, I, I just feel like, you know, we have to be very careful not to be um, rigid and judgmental in these issues, but sure. to, uh, ask for the Lord's grace in every marriage to to make those decisions, and then we we need to respect them. People differ on them, and uh, yet we love them and respect them anyway. So I think that's an important thing to say. Very much. This world, I mean, we're all worried about global warming, but if, if everybody's country gets below that two point one, you know, uh, children per couple, uh, we could just go out with a whimper instead of a bang. Yeah. Well, they, that 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 probably won't happen. You, I, I think the, I think the uh, declining birth crisis is probably something that's more afflicting the West than elsewhere. And, and again, probably because of, um, of our prosperity and the, the, the choices in life that prosperity affords us. Well, we so, have a guide at the end of every year. I forget what it was. Uh, anyway, it's a book with all the countries in it or almost all the countries in it. Oh yeah. Operation world. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I flipped through there and I, I only found, I think about, I can't remember nine or not between like nine and 15 countries that were over the limit, over that 2.1. Mm. And at that point, the U S was one of them. This is not wow. the case anymore. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd like to look at it again. Uh, statistics. You're good on statistics, Steve. Why don't you <laughs> look that one uh, up? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good at quoting statistics. I don't know that I'm good at statistics. <laughs> I don't expect you to create them. I do expect you to be able to quote them. <laughs> no, it would be interesting. I, I just feel like we're going against God's will to fill the earth. Yeah. Um, I've always said, you know, keep having babies. God will know when the earth is full. He'll stop it then. You know, he goes. This concludes the episode of the Truth Exchange Podcast. This program is listener-supported and only made possible through the contributions of friends like you.